Amen. My wife and I had a good time last week preaching at Joel Tillis' church, Sun Coast Baptist Church. He's had us in, I guess, for about 10 years straight, uh, Labor Day weekend. Well, just really had a great service. But missed being here, and I, I'm sure that everything went good here. I know it's always in good hands. Appreciate Brother Xavier. and Brother Jonathan taught my men's class. Brother Xavier preached. And, and of course, everything on as it should, and I'm so happy about it. I want you to go to Psalms 123. Psalms 123, we've got to prepare our hearts for the Lord to do something good. How many of you would like to see something good happen at Orlando Baptist Temple during this, this next couple of weeks? could be a launch for us. It could be that little spark. You know, you look at huge forest fires that, that, that ravage thousands and thousands of acres. Sometimes it starts with just a little spark, just a little flicker, a little flame that, that got out of control. Wouldn't it be great if we could just get out of control for Jesus, man, just... Just ignite a fire and you see people get saved. I heard one time about a man who lived next door to a church. and He was one of those that was just a very bad neighbor to have. He was always mad about something, always griping, always complaining, always mad about the church making noise, mad about kids playing too close to his yard from the church, and just constantly upset. Well, people in the church had invited him over and over and over again to come, and he would never come. And then, unfortunately... That church got struck by lightning, and it caught on fire. And I mean, it was just a blaze. Well, firemen showed up, and the church members came, and of course, they stood in the parking lot with tears in their eyes, watching their beloved church facility as it was burning to the ground. Suddenly, they looked, and standing there, right there in the middle of them all, was that neighbor who had always caused them so many problems. And one of the men looked at him and said, Well, I never, ever thought I'd see you at our church. He looked at him and said, Well, I never saw this church on fire before. Well, the reality is, we need to get on fire for God, and people might come and watch the glow, amen? They might come and see the excitement of it all. We need to get on fire for the Lord. A lot of churches are reporting downshifts, and, and, and they're not running what they used to run, and they're very discouraged, and a lot of churches are closing shop. And, and we, you know, listen, we're living in the days that are described here in 2 Timothy. Before I go back to 2 Timothy, though, join with me in the Scripture to Psalms one. 23. The only way to keep a fire going is to keep it fueled. When pastors quit fueling the fire, the fire goes out. How do we fuel the fire? We've got to keep revivals going. We've got to keep piling on the wood of excitement, and the wood of conviction, the wood of concern, all those things we've got to keep throwing on our fire. I'm going to have this revival next week because we need it. We need it as a church, but you need it as a person. You know why people drop out of church? Their fire goes out. Their personal fires go out. And you get enough people in the church dropping out, then eventually the church's fire goes out. You know, it's kind of like anything. If, I, if, I give, if we turn off these lights and I give one person a candle, we'll have a little bit of light. A little bit of light. But if everybody here had a candle, even in a dark room, if every one of you are holding a candle, we'll have a lot of light. Every light that suddenly starts getting blown out darkness starts to fill the room again. If we were to demonstrate this, I actually did that one night on, a, on an evening service. I handed out a bunch of candles. Some of you were here for that, and I had them turn off the lights. Brother Howard started crying. He was afraid of the dark, but I was like, it's all right, Brother Howard. That's not true. He didn't really do that. That was funny, though, wasn't it? Would have been funny to have seen that happen. Uh, but I handed out candles, and I had everybody light their candles, and then one by one, I started having people blow their candle out. Some of you were here. Remember how the room was lit up with all those candles? Then all of a sudden, with every candle that was blown out, the room got darker and darker and got down to one candle. 
we had a little bit of light, but, but still the, the intensity was gone. You know, churches are seeing their candles go out. They're going out individually, individually. It's not a blowout, it's a small leak. Eventually it's flat. This revival is geared to get you pumped up for Jesus. It's geared to get you personally shining for the Lord again. And, and you know, it's a natural occurrence. People start out, and they, they're, they're excited, and it just winds down. We have to get wound back up. Now, I want to talk to you about the disease of the modern evangelistic church. And I want to, I want to talk to you about it in the sense of cautionary. If we're not careful, this can happen to us. Now, I want you to notice this in Psalms 123, verse number 4. It says, Our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorning of those that are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. You know, one of the things that is plaguing churches across America is the scorning of those that are at ease. What people are looking for today is a church that has no conviction and therefore no burden. People want to be left at ease. I don't want to be bothered with church work. I don't want to be bothered with the souls of other people. I don't want to be bothered with a guilt feeling that I need to be doing some more work. I'm busy. I've got things going on. My Saturdays are for important things. If I don't watch college football, it might fold up. Amen? If I don't stay home on Sunday and watch the NFL, well, the whole league might go under. Those are important things, and my team needs me to cheer for them, and they might not win. I mean, we're, 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 we're given to the things that are directly often competing with the work of God. And if you were to describe the Christian realm today, I think one of the best ways to describe it is, is that it's at ease. There's not an intensity. There's not a fire. There's not a diligence. There's not a a passion burning in the pews of most churches. We want short services. We want user-friendly churches, people-friendly churches. We want churches where we never feel convicted. We never feel bad about our life or our lifestyle or the choices we make. We, we want churches that, that we come, we get our ears tickled a little, and we go home. We want churches that don't offer much. We, we looked at this morning in Sunday school on it's common sense reasons why God wants us to go to church. Now, I personally believe that obedience is important to God. And I feel that disobedience is a sin. I gave the illustration in Sunday school how it is not God's will that everybody be a preacher. But it was God's will that Jonah be a preacher. And it wasn't God's will that every preacher go to Nineveh. But it was God's will that Jonah went to Nineveh. Now, Jonah stepped up to say, okay, God, I'll do your work, but I will not do it where you told me to do it. He tried to go somewhere else. In that, God had to break him down. God had to use a well to redirect Jonah's direction. You see, from that story, I gather a principle from this story. God expects us to obey what he tells us to do. Not partially, not according to our wishes or desires or what's best for us or what's easy for us. God expects us to do what he tells us to do. Now, I don't know, maybe I'm off on that. How many of you see that same principle in the story of Jonah? Say amen. God wants us to obey, and I think going to church, number one, it fulfills an obedience to God. God has told us and instructed us 
to gather and assemble in the ecclesia, the called out assembly, for the purpose of doing the work of God, praising God, reading the word of God, proclaiming the gospel. But I also feel that there are some common sense reasons. And we were looking at all that in Sunday school. And yet we're seeing churches all around that are just emptying out. We're seeing where there seems to be diseases in many of the churches today. And I want you to notice something as we go back to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Go back there and join me. 2 Timothy chapter 3. You know, the Bible says, Forsake not the assembling together, and that much the more as we see the day approaching. Churches by the scores are closing out their Sunday nights, not offering it anymore. They're closing out their Sunday schools, not offering them anymore. They're closing down their Wednesday night. Many churches have gone to a Sunday morning only format. Now, I'm a preacher. What I do, I, I, I esteem it to be very important. I believe the work of God is important. You know, the New Testament Christian met every day. In the early church, they had services daily. Seven days a week, the Bible describes in the book of Acts. They daily met, they fellowshiped as Christians, and they broke the word of the they broke the bread of the word and they fellowshiped in the word of God. Every day. Now, not on, not of any churches that meet every day anymore. We have revivals once in a while where we have church every night, but but for the most part, a church that's doing good is offering Sunday morning, Sunday night, and, and Wednesday night. And now we've seen churches by the scores only offering Sunday morning. And basically. As a pastor, you could never make the argument that we need less church today in our society. If I were to get up and say, we just really need less preaching in our society today. The world's doing good. We really are doing good. We just don't really need that much preaching. People are doing good. They're living by the word. And man, society is great. And people are obeying the laws of God. We really don't need that much of it. How many of you would say, preacher, that's a wrong statement? And yet churches, by the scores are deducting, we don't need that much church anymore. Let's just have one service a week, Sunday morning. That's sufficient. I mean, listen, our kids that go to schools and they're told eight hours a day, 40 hours a week, that socialism is the answer and that godlessness is the answer and that you came from some lower life form and you evolved into what you are now by some cosmic accident, they get 40 hours a week of godlessness. But hey, 30 minutes of preaching should undo all that. That's all we need, man. That's all we need. Listen, I'm fighting the battle of the flesh, and I'm doing great. I don't even really have to struggle, or, or I'm not even really dealing with temptation. I don't need that much church, because I'm winning the battle every day. Now, anybody in here so arrogant that you'd make that statement? Some of you raised your eyebrow because you thought I was making that statement. You're like, what's he saying? You know why pastors quit having Sunday night and Wednesday night and Sunday school? It's not because they themselves don't recognize their people need more church. It'd be foolish for me to say Pine Hills doesn't need more church. That'd be the dumbest statement anybody could ever make. We should have church every night of the week. We'd still be losing the battle of the flesh out there. Let me tell you why then they're doing it. Because if you can't beat them, join them. They're tired of walking out to a stage on Sunday afternoon and seeing six people, four people, three people, sometimes no people. I've talked to several pastors over the last few months that are so frustrated. They've showed up on Sunday nights to nobody but their wife and kids. 
And they're so frustrated with their churches over it. And I praise the Lord that's never happened to me. Sometimes the crowd may be small, but I've always had others here. But their, their attitude now is, is you know what? My, my sofa is just as comfortable for me on Sunday night as it is for you. And my sofa is just as comfortable on Wednesday as it is for me. And, you know, I like to play golf, too. And, and I'm just going to cut out all the things that stand in the way of me doing the things that everybody else. So it's, if you can't beat them, join them. So they're cutting out church services. Their, their attitude is nobody wants it. Why stress the people? Let me tell you why we stress the people, because you need it. Preacher, when are you going to quit pushing us? When I'm dead? Amen? Simple answer. When am I going to quit pushing you to do right? When you're in heaven. Until that day, man, you can't have movement without pressure. Your car runs on pressure. Combustion causes pressure, which shoves pistons up, and that causes movement down the road. Amen? Can't have movement without pressure. Churches are in trouble. Now, Paul writes about this day coming, and he gives a very bleak look at the future. Now, I want to draw your attention to this. Some of you know this. I've taught you this. 2 Timothy 3 is not talking about the shape of the world. It's not saying that the world will become this way. The world was already that way in Paul's day. There were already people that were exceedingly wicked. Listen, there is no new sin on this face of this planet. Every sin that is going on in this world has gone on since the days of Adam and Eve. Man was wicked very quickly. The Bible says that God looked down on man and man's heart was full of wickedness. And every imagination they had was for wickedness. He flooded the earth trying to cleanse it. Man quickly learned to be wicked again. Well, there's no new sin out there. It's just new people doing it. The reality is the world's always been horrible. The world's always been against God. The world has always stood against Christ. The world has always stood against this book. So why is he saying that in the last days troubling or perilous times will come. What's he talking about here? Now, as we're reading this, what Paul is talking about, he is saying in the house of God, in the very places that are holy, where holiness should abound, where preaching should be sounded out, where righteousness should be important. He is saying, young preacher boy, he's talking to a young preacher boy named Timothy. He says, let me tell you something, son. Hard times are coming for the church. One day it will not be like it is now, where people are literally risking their life to serve God. Literally, the very act of getting saved could land them in a prison, or could land them in a coliseum, fighting off a lion or a bear or being burned at a stake. You know, Nero at this time was killing Christians everywhere. In fact, Nero would have parties at his house, and he would literally keep Christians in prison, and he would tie them to stakes around his yard. While he was entertaining his guests, he would light the courtyard with the bodies on fire of Christians that he had arrested and, and condemned. Because in Rome, it was against the law to worship anybody but Caesar. And anybody caught worshiping Jesus had committed a crime worthy of death. And yet Christianity had an explosive time during this point of history. People were getting saved left and right. Even as though they were being murdered, counted as sheep for the slaughter. Paul writes about it extensively, but he says, you know, it's not always going to be like it is now. There's going to come a day where the biggest problems the church has isn't out there like it is now. It'll be inside. It'll be an, an infection, a disease, literally inside the body of the church. 
And he says, this is what it's going to be like in the future, right before Jesus returns. He says, this know also, verse 1, that in the last days, those are the days right before Jesus comes. Now listen, I'm going to make this statement. I believe I could back it up. I'm not going to at the moment, but I believe I could. We're in the last of the last days. Jesus is coming soon. Every generation has thought this, wondered about it, and has taught it. Listen, folks, I can't imagine that, that it's that far away. And there's all kinds of things I could teach you this morning, but time will not permit that. But I will be teaching on it at 3 o'clock on that very topic when we look at Revelation this afternoon. Come back for it. You'll learn something. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. That word perilous is the word troubling. Troubling times. He says there's troubling times coming for the church. Now he says this is what the church will be full of. This is what the people of the church will be like. Men shall be lovers of their own selves. That's talking about selfishness, boastfulness, arrogance. Men love them. You know why so many people get bent out of shape when you preach on sin? Because it's their sin. And they don't feel they need your help telling them how to live. And that's pride. Men love themselves more than they love Christ. Covetous. That's wanting things that you're not supposed to have. Wanting things that you shouldn't have. Wanting things that's not possible for you to have. We are often covetous of sin in the world. Boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. These are the people of the church, man, right in the middle of the church. These are the, the descriptions of people that are now the Christian crowd. He says, without natural affection. That's talking about homosexuality there. There would be a day, you know, listen, I'm going to tell you what, churches are having struggles over this. Let me tell you why. Listen, I was raised in church. Raised in church, and I remember the day when preachers could get up and preach on homosexuality, and they could preach on it very fervently using the Scripture, and nobody would get that bent out of shape. They recognized that the Bible made a clear stance. Man should not lie with mankind as womankind, and women should not lie with womankind as with mankind. And we understood this. We understood the Bible took a clear stance on it. By the way, I still believe that. Amen? Now, I believe God loves all people, and I believe that if people will repent, they can be saved. We do not preach a message of hate. We preach a message of repentance. And by the way, if you're committing other sins, you need to repent. It's not the only one. But let me tell you why it's so troubling now. There was a time when you can get up and just go on a rant about it, preach hard, pound the pulpit. Your people would yell amen because that particular sin was 100 miles. It wasn't in our pews. Many people, if you knew of somebody that lived a homosexual lifestyle, it was very private. And many of you knew people back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s that maybe were homosexual, but you never knew it unless you were very close to them. Am I making a true statement? It was kept more quiet. That's where the phrase, come out of the closet, came from. People started coming out and declaring it more. But there was a time, it always existed. It was always there. It's not a new sin. It existed in biblical days as well. And it was preached against in biblical days as well. But it existed. Now, here's the reality that we face now. Paul said there will come a day where it will be right in the middle of the church. You know one of the biggest hot-button issues we're dealing with right now? We're dealing with 
literally the threat that to preach against homosexuality is a hate crime. Now listen, you'll never hear me tell you to hurt a homosexual, to harm one, to beat one, to kill one. That is not Bible. It is not what the Word of God tells us to do. Let me tell you why it's harder now. Many of us know people that we love that are involved in homosexuality. It used to not be that way. Now it's more rampant. It's more declared. It's more in the open. It's not uncommon to see church families that believe the Bible, stand on the Bible, and love the Bible. But now they may have a son, a daughter, a grandchild, a sister, a mother who is engaged in that lifestyle. Now, many of them don't mind you as long as you stay in the Scripture and stay respectful preaching on it. But if you preached on it the way the preachers of old preached on it, they'll get up and walk out. Move their membership to a more sin-friendly church. There's actually Christian churches now pastored by gay pastors and lesbian pastors and, and churches that cater to that community, which makes us seem very intolerant, very hate-filled. Now listen, I preach on adultery just as strong as I do homosexuality. But yet, that fills our pews as well. I preach on being a stinking, dirty, rotten liar as much as I do being homosexual. But I'm not going to try to stand here before you and say that God doesn't take a stance on it. He does. Why we have a hard time preaching on it? Because now it's inside the walls. Good families who are with you, but now it's their son, it's their daughter. They can't tolerate the preaching on it anymore. And so Paul said there's going to come a day. We're right here in the church, and it was always in the world. I'm sure Paul was familiar with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which had happened hundreds of years before he was born. It's a sin that's been around for ages. But he said, one day, Timothy, it'll be right in the middle of our churches. It'll be in our pews with people daring us to preach on it. We're there. Some preachers in Houston. The governor of, I mean, I'm sorry, the mayor of Houston, Texas, four years ago, was a known out-of-the-closet lesbian. And she tried to have four pastors arrested in Houston for hate crime and demanded copies of their sermon transcripts. And she was going to have them arrested for hate crime because they had just recently taught and preached against the sin of homosexuality. Now, the reality is pastors are becoming afraid to preach not only on that sin. There was a time when a lot of sins, if people in the church did them, they were done quietly, secretly, and they weren't done presumptuously and boastfully. Is that a true statement? We're living in a day and age now where people come to church with all manner of sin and just dare you to try to preach on it. I'll split your church in 50 ways, man. Pastors are afraid. They're afraid, man. They, you know, they got mortgage payments and light bills to pay, and they really don't want to go back to you know, what they did, you know, before they became preachers. They don't want to go back to work in a secular job. So now they're tending to be more muzzled and more quiet, and they're saying, hey, I don't want to ruffle any feathers. But there was a time when it wasn't the church body that was blatantly doing these things and daring the pastor to preach on it. They expected the pastor to preach on it. They needed the pastor. Some of them had those struggles in their heart, those tendencies. They needed to hear the Word of God constantly preached to them. Now listen, I'm for everybody, because you know what? If I said we need a church with no sinners, there ain't, there's none of us, including me, could be a member here. 
None of us could be. I would love to see people struggling with all manner of sins. First step is come to know Jesus as your Savior. First step. First step. Let the Lord cleanse you from the inside and eventually it'll come to your outside. Get in the Word. Get under good, sound teaching. Get in a prayer life, a devotional life, and the Lord will start to change your thinking. You're not going to change anything because I get up here and scream and yell and spit and, and get in your face. But I do know that teaching is to educate you. Preaching is to motivate you. And I do know this. Our church will fill up with every single sin that I become afraid to preach against. Am I right about that? Where does liberalism come from? Narcissism. It's preachers who want to be liked by man, and they want to be everybody's friend, and they want to be everybody's cool buddy more than they care about being faithful to God. Now listen, I love all of you, and I want you to love me. I really do. But more importantly, I need to know that I've been faithful to the Word of God. And if that means I have to preach on a sin that you're bringing into Orlando Baptist Temple and bringing it right here to the pew, I need to try my best to try to preach to you about that and convict you that you will get your life right with God. Sin can be a reproach not only to you, but open sin that, is, that we pacify can become a reproach unto us. Am I right? Sin can sometimes be like secondhand smoke, you know what I'm trying to say? It can affect those around you. You say, well, I don't agree with that preacher. Well, I can show you where Achan brought his reproach onto the whole nation of Israel, and 30-some-odd families had to mourn the death of their dad, their husband, their son, because of one man's sin. I can show you in the Bible where all of us are in trouble because of one man's sin, that man being Adam. Listen, little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so here we are, Paul says, there's going to be a day, Timothy, where people won't listen to sound preaching, and they're going, to, they're going to find teachers that just tickle their ears. And he says, this is what the church is going to be like. These are the people of the pews, man. They're going to be despisers of those that are good. They're going to be truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent. You know, the word incontinent is not a word used a whole lot today. But what it means is, is that you have no self-control. You know what the biggest reason why people get involved in sin I just couldn't help it, preacher. I just couldn't stop myself. We're incontinent. He said the church is going to be full of people who just can't control themselves. Hey, listen. We're seeing it. Fierce. The word fierce. It's the word savage is another word that could be used there. Angry. People that walk into a church and shoot it up. You know what I'm saying? Churches today have to have armed security guards. Every church. I've been to at least three seminars on how to have church security in the last year, something I never dreamed I'd have to do to protect our flock. We've made measures to bring up our security. Why? Because there's a lot of fierce people out there. But sadly, a lot of them are, are there's been people walk into their own church and shoot up people in their church. Pastors have literally been murdered in the altars of their church during invitations by members of their church. We're living in different times, amen? I, I dare say we're living in perilous times. 
traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures, more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. Listen, we see the description there. The Bible warns that in the last days, the church and the body of Christianity would suffer from several maladies. We see that it mentions various character problems. It mentions a tolerance of sin, which allows sin to exist in the church. We see that it will have uh, a, a church that is very... Churches today can be described often as being very spiritual, but yet not godly. And that's what he's talking about there in verse number 5. He says, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Churches today are often spiritual, but very, very ungodly in their stances. And he sees, we see where these things are happening. But now, notice... The disease that is leading to the death of so many churches is described. And we see here, go, I want you to join with me, if you would, over in Matthew 24. We'll see Jesus speak of this disease that's going to destroy many churches. If we're not careful, it could destroy ours. We're preparing for revival. Next week, it'll start. Why are we going to have revival? Because I'm trying to keep this disease out of our church. Jesus is going to speak about it. He says here in Matthew 24, look at verse number 12. This is the words of Christ himself. It's in red. It says, and because of iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Wickedness will cause many people in Christianity, the love in their heart will just go cold. Now, if you will, go over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Are y'all still with me this morning? Man, I'm for seeing lives changed. I've seen people get in the throes of sin and get under a good preacher, get under biblical preaching, and it changed their life. You don't make people better by telling them their condition is okay. You make people better by treating the condition. I don't want to go to a doctor who says, you have cancer, but don't worry about it, man. It'll all work out. It's all right. You know, I want a doctor who says, you have cancer, and I aim to do everything I can to rid your body of it. I want an aggressive doctor who says, I want to save your life. I want you to be well and whole. And by the same token, you ought to want a preacher who says, you know what, there's sin in your life. And left undone, it's going to ruin you. But I'm going to do everything I can to help you get rid of that thing. You say, well, he ain't. You know what, doctors get sick too. How can that preacher help me? He ain't perfect. Well, you know, I know doctors. I've had personal doctors die of cancer. Does that mean everything they did to treat every patient when they were just a bunch of hypocrites? They were sick themselves. We're all human, amen? <sighs> Second Timothy 3, look at verse 1. I'm sorry, not 2 Timothy, 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians. Look at chapter 2. I looked at the wrong place there. 2 Thessalonians 2, look at verse number 3. It says this. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Now, in the latter end, he's talking about the Antichrist, which will come on the scene and lead the world astray, a false messiah. But he says before that comes, there's going to be a falling away. Now, there's a biblical term that describes that happening. It's called apostasy. Say that with me. Apostasy. Say it good and loud where I can hear you, buddy. Apostasy. 
The word apostasy is a word that describes falling away. Jesus said that there would be a time, or the, the Word of God says there would be a time, right before the end comes, that we would see a falling away in the church. A time of apostasy, a falling away from the faith. There are those that fall away from the practice of Christianity. They would fall away from the passion of the work of God. We would fall away from the production of the work of God, getting things done for the sake of Jesus. Now, it wasn't always this way. There was a period of time when churches were on fire. We studied it last Sunday night, or two Sunday nights ago, we looked at the Philadelphia church age. How many of you were there for that? Raise your hand. You know, that is the age when Baptist churches were massive. People come to me all the time and say, you know, our church ain't near as big as it used to be. I know it. There was a period of time in history the Bible describes as the Philadelphia church age. When, I mean, it's all right there, you can see it. When Bible-believing, Bible-preaching, gospel-evangelistic churches would be the mainstream churches of the world. And man, for about 150 years, if you went to any town in America, the largest church in that town would be a hellfire brimstone, King James Bible preaching, hymnal singing, manly man pastor behind the pulpit preaching type church. And they were packed full. And it was not uncommon to see an independent Baptist church or a Southern Baptist church or a missionary Baptist church sometimes running thousands. We go along now and those are more like museums. You know, they've got more pews than they do people. This church ran a thousand every Sunday practically throughout the 60s. Man, we'd like to go back to them good old days, wouldn't we? Now there was a shift. Now that went on for a while. You can document it. You can study it in history. There was a shift, and the Bible talks about the seventh and final church age, Laodicean church age, where it describes what the mainstream church of that age would look like. And these are churches. We're going to look at it, in fact, at 3 o'clock today. We're going to be looking at the Laodicean church. These are churches that are more worldly than they are godly. It gets so bad, the Bible says, that Jesus is standing outside the church knocking on the door saying, Hey, somebody let me in here. The word Laodicean means people-pleasing. Constantly I'm reading church growth books. You need to be a people-friendly church. What do you reckon they mean when they're telling a preacher you need to be more people-friendly? What do you think they're instructing us to do there? Don't preach against sin. Preach for things, don't preach against things. Now, here's the reality that we concluded in our service two weeks ago. Some of you were here. We're going to be a Philadelphia-age church that stands for the book, stands for Jesus, as they did. We're going to pay the cost. What is the cost? Smaller churches. Because it's not the mainstream way of doing it today. It wasn't always this way, but it is this way now. It is the way it is going to be till the return of Jesus. Now, I don't have time to get into some of that, but I hope you'll come back at 3, because I'm going to be teaching a very, very deep lesson on the Laodicean church at 3 o'clock. Now, I mentioned apostasy. It is the disease killing many churches. People that have lost their passion, have lost their, their, their practice. There's a lot of Christians that don't go to church today. 
they have fallen away from the practice of their faith. Are y'all with me this morning? I mean, I'm telling you the whole problem here. The problem is when we start examining problems, nobody wants to hear the solution. We love to discuss problems. It's when you start trying to give the answer that you lose everybody. Everybody starts going, well, I don't want to do that because that would be hard. Well, I don't want to do that because I know people that would offend. Well, I don't want to do that because that means I'm going to have to do something. I'd rather just sit and gripe. I don't want to be part of the solution. I, I like talking about the problem. Well, listen, there are churches today, Philadelphia-style churches like us, that still stand on King James, still sing the old hymns, still preach the old message, and they're growing, they're seeing harvest, much like Ruth, who was going around and getting the leftovers that Boaz left on purpose for her. God's always got a harvest for those that want to go find it. By the way, if you study the book of Ruth, Boaz is a picture of Jesus. Ruth is a picture of the church. It's an amazing contrast there. If you think about Ruth, the book of Ruth, it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, then Ruth, right? Ruth's the eighth book in the Bible. Judges deals with people, everybody doing what's right in their own eyes. Everybody doing what's good for themselves, just like the Laodicean church. Then you go to Ruth and you see a widow lady out there getting the left behind little handfuls of grain that were left behind by Boaz on purpose. You know what, they called it the gleanings, the left behinds. You know what we're doing now? We're getting the gleanings as the Philadelphia church age. Because most of the church is in the do what's good in your own eyes. We don't use the word of God anymore. The word of God is not the final authority in those modern churches. You hear a lot of things in modern churches like, well, I just feel, and I think, and you know what? I just kind of reckon that God wouldn't care. Nobody cares what you think. Nobody cares what you feel, and nobody cares how you reckon. This is the authority that we got to stand on. And that's not the message of the modern-day church. Nobody cares what I think about anything. You're not here to hear the thoughts of Russell Riggs. You're here to hear the thoughts that come from the Word of God. Amen. And if I can't back it up in Scripture, it has every right to be dismissed. But every man doing what's right in his own eyes is what's brought on the perilous times that Paul described. And that was fun. That's fun. That's just it's fun to let it out once in a while. Amen. Hey, let me give you this. This is the answer. I call it the vitamin C for the disease of the church. Apostasy is killing churches, man. Apostasy, a falling away. A falling away. One preacher went before his church and he said, hey, he said, uh, guys, I don't know what's wrong with our church. Is it, is it just apathy? One of his men said, he said, is it apathy or is it just ignorance? Or we, do we just not know what to do? Or are we just apathetic? We just, we just have lost our concern. His head deacon stood up and said, preacher, I don't know and I don't really care. You know what? When you see apostasy set in, it's people who don't know what the problem is and really don't care what the answer is. Here's the answer, though, for you. If you, want, if you don't want to commit the sin of apostasy, and I would assume I'm talking to people who don't want to fall away. That's why you're here. You passed 50 liberal churches on the way to this Bible preaching church. It wasn't that you had other options or you didn't have other options. You had other options. 
There's a lot of churches here that will never make you feel convicted. And I promise you, I want you to have a good time at church, but I also want to be effective. I want to help you live a better life. Now, if that be the case, then you should be wanting to guard yourself from the sin of apostasy, the falling away. Here it is. Number one, you've got to have concern and care. First vitamin C is concern and care. Say it with me. Concern and care. How do you avoid apostasy? Have some concern and some care. Hey, you need to have some concern about the house of God. You know why churches are dying by the scores? Good churches, Baptist churches, Bible teaching churches are dying. Nobody cares anymore. Nobody cares about their revivals. I ain't going to that. I'm busy. I ain't going to that. Doesn't interest me. I ain't going to that. I've never heard of that preacher. I don't know who he, I'm not going to that. Where's the concern for the house of God anymore? I just listed seven needs that our church has. Now, I'm going to tell you, somebody's going to have some concern for those seven needs to get filled. Now, we got people doing things all over the place all the time, but I'm going to tell you why churches go into needs. It's not that they don't have enough people or people with the skills to do it. It's that they don't have people that care enough to do it. And churches are dying because people have fallen into the apostasy where they no longer care about the condition, the shape, or the health of their local church. Do you care about Orlando Baptist Temple? Do you care about the church that God has given to you? If you're apathetic going towards it, then your church is not going to do well. Churches that are growing are churches full of people who care and are concerned about the house of God. They're concerned about the look of it. They're concerned about the testimony of their church. They're concerned about the tithes and offerings of their church. They're concerned about the health of it and getting neighbors and friends and people to come. They're concerned about the house of God. They want the house of God they attend to be healthy and happy and harmonious. Let me tell you, though, churches that get the disease of apostasy, well, there's apathy that comes with it, and they do not care anymore. Doesn't bother them to see their pastor discouraged. Doesn't bother them to see their church emptying out. Doesn't concern them to know their church has needs that they could be an answer to. They don't have a stirring in their heart, a conviction about it. Churches are dying because of apostasy and the falling away of concern and care. Hey, we need to have concern and care about the work of God Listen, someone's got to do it. People are dying and going to hell. People with souls are dying and going to hell for eternity. We've got to have concern and care as we look at these people. We need to have concern and care about the gospel. People simply just don't care anymore. That's the point of the whole, one of the points, or several points, but the good Samaritan story. You see a man there dying and all these religious people walking right by him, looking at him and saying, that man needs help, but what could happen to me if I help him? What could happen to me if I help him? Then you see a Samaritan who comes along and he asks the right question. The first couple of guys came along, saw him, they got completely on the other side of the road. They didn't want to get involved, didn't want to get his stink on them, his blood, his responsibility. The man was robbed, he had nothing. Whoever helped him knew, we're going to have to probably pay for his medical and get him in. Everybody else says, what could happen to me if I get involved with this guy? They got on the other side of the road and went on by and left him laying there to die. Then all of a sudden, a Samaritan comes along. He looks down, sees a man lying there bleeding to death, and he asks the right question. 
what will happen to him if I don't help him? And you know why churches are dying of apostasy? We have fallen away from care and concern. What will happen to these bus kids if we don't help them? What, you think Pine Hills is going to reach the bus kids? The gangs will reach them. Is that going to help them, Brother Ray? What do you think? You think it's going to make them better people? You think when these older men who use them for stealing and robbing mules are going to ruin these 15, 16-year-old boys, they're going to have a criminal record where they're even adults. Learning a life of picking locks, breaking into cars, stealing houses. You say, does that go on? You bet it goes on. I've dealt with it so many times here, I can't even tell you the stories. Older men that get attached to these younger boys and ruin their lives. These younger girls, I'm going to tell you something. We don't reach them, they will. The drug dealers will reach them. The pimps will reach them. While we sit around and we, we, we're so apostate, we have fallen away from any concern or care about any of this. It's a disease that's destroying churches. It's the answer. We've got to develop concern and care. We've got to ask what will happen to them if we don't care and we don't get involved. Churches don't want to ask that question anymore. What about this? Let me give you a, the second C here. Compassion. You lose your compassion, you're on the road to apostasy. You're going to be falling away. Compassion for the souls of man. Let me give you a third C, character. You don't want to become apostate you better develop some character. Character is doing what you're supposed to do when you're not made to do it. Churches are emptying out of people, and the, the answer is very simple. It's a characterless situation. They know what they should do. Nobody can really sit and seriously have a conversation with any pastor and explain to us that church is not an important thing. I've had people try to do it. It's just, I actually kind of enjoy that conversation. So many holes in that thinking. No serious Christian would really ever sit and try to explain that you shouldn't have to go to church. People say, well, God doesn't need me to go to church for, for, for him to love me. Well, you're right. You know, God loves you no matter if you're a jerk or not. But how about showing God you love him once in a while? Is really, is God's love on trial here? I mean, Jesus died on a cross. He carried a cross of shame, was hung naked in front of all mankind, had nails driven through his hands and had his back beaten with a whip. And he did all of that to redeem you and me from our sins because he loves us and God sent him to do it because he loved us, according to John 3, 16. I mean, is God's love really on trial here? The same God who gives you every day that you enjoy and he gives you everything you have and he rains blessings on you daily, daily, daily. Is God's love really in, on trial here? God gave it all for you. What have you ever done for him? Try that with your wife. Amen? I expect you to do all these things for me, cook and clean. And I expect you to, to, to be loving and to be sweet. Fulfill every wifely duty that I expect. Now, I'm not going to say I love you. I'm not even going to come home most nights. I'm not going to help do anything. I expect to come home to a clean house and, and, a, and a mowed lawn and a washed car. But now, listen, 
I married you, and I told you the day I married you, I loved you. What more do you need? Now, how many of you would, after a while, come home to an empty house? That's how we're trying to sell this to God. God, I want you to do everything for me. Now, I ain't going to do nothing for you, but you know I love you. You think God's some mindless bimbo? But is that what we think? Hey, we got to have some character. If you don't want to fall into apostasy, get some vitamin C in your life. Do what's right. Do what's right. Do it when no one else does it. Do it when others have quit. And you do it when it's not fun. And you do it when it's not popular. You do what your convictions tell you to do because that's having character. It's having character. And then lastly, you, want to fall, you don't want to have apostasy. You don't want to be somebody who falls away from your faith, your belief, your practice of Christianity. Have a calling. Have a calling. Do you hear the calling of God? Do you really hear God really speak to you much anymore? Now, if you're honest, there was a time when you felt the calling of God in your heart. Preacher would preach and you'd feel a stirring. The day you got saved, you felt a stirring, a calling to get saved. Sometimes you'd hear about the needs in your church and you'd feel a stirring, a calling. God's saying, I'm calling you to do that. Do you still hear it? I'll close with this. Years ago, a man was raised in a Christian home. His mom and dad were farmers, and they did all they could to provide for him. They took him to that little country church on Wednesday night and on Sunday morning, Sunday night, raised him in Sunday school, and they prayed before their meals, and that little mother would gather him up and have prayer with him before he'd go to bed and read him a little scripture verse. And that dad tried to be an example of believing and having faith in God, living in character. The young boy grew up, and he got to be of age to go to college, and he left home to go to a university in a big city. On the way to the train depot to drop this boy off, mom and dad were feeling that sad emptiness that, that any parent would feel, that feeling that I've done all I can do, I've taught them all I can teach them, they're now ready to go to another level. I'm going to have to let them leave the nest, but you're wondering in your mind, did I give them everything? Is there that one last little bit of knowledge I can give them? So the mom's there, and as the boy's getting out of the car to go get on the train, his mom grabbed him by the arm one last time, and she said, Son, stay in church. When you get up to that city, you find a church and get into it, and you stay in church. He looked at her and said, Yes, ma'am. Well, he got there, got enrolled, and started working a little part-time job, got busy. Before he knew it, Three or four months had passed, and he hadn't gone to church one time, Brother Woody. He hadn't gone to church at all. One day, some friends came to him and invited him to go out on a Sunday morning to go horseback riding in the country. He said he would go, and he got on the horse, and he began to ride out in the countryside. Been in college all week, working, had this day free. I wanted to go relax. They're out riding in the country, and as they were riding in the country... They came upon one of them old-fashioned country churches, the kind that had the old bell. The old preacher was out there. Church was going to start in about 20 minutes, and he started ringing the bell to let people know church is about to start. He looked, and coming up the dirt road where people just walked into church with their families from those little, little community around the church. 
And they rode on through and went behind the church. And him and his buddies continued riding on in their horse. And they ran on down out of the, uh, out of the area and they could hear that bell ringing. And it started getting more and more faint. And he's riding along and he's hearing this bell in his head. And he's thinking, man, he remembered the promise that he made to his mother who tried her best to raise him to serve God. And how now he's been three months without even going to church. Suddenly he just stopped as they got on top of a hill. He could now just barely hear the old bell. Where it was really loud as he was standing next to it, now it's very faint. He can still barely hear it in his ear. He stopped and his friends stopped. And they looked at him and said, aren't you coming? He said, no. He said, guys, y'all go ahead. And they said, what's wrong? He said, I need to go back. I need to go back while I can still hear that bell. You know what he was saying there? There comes a point where you don't hear the bell anymore. I fear that I pastor people, you don't hear the bell anymore. There's no tear in your eye. There's no conviction in your heart. There's habit. There's, that's just what good old Christians do. Or if I don't do it, what people think about me? Or I got to keep my wife happy. You don't hear the bell of conviction anymore and the bell of compassion and the bell of concern. We're seeing churches all over the place where the pews, the people no longer hear the Spirit of God in their ear anymore. There's no broken hearts anymore. Our pews are going dry with people who are just thinking, I wish he'd hurry up and get done. I need to get home, catch the last part of that game. I need to get to the restaurant before the other crowds get there. And I'm going to tell you where you're at. You've got a disease. You're left uncontrolled. It's going to lead you to full-on, full-blown apostasy, a falling away from the practice of your faith. And it is the disease that is killing Churches all over America. Do you still hear the bell this morning? Holy Spirit, is the Holy Spirit still ringing your bell? I want you to bow your heads. We're going to be unleashing a revival next Sunday. You know what my prayer